1 Corinthians chapter 8. And remember that we are really looking at the questions that they've asked Paul. Be nice in some ways if we had their letter. <laughs> We'd like to understand a little better what questions they asked. But uh, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. That uh, seemed to have been a significant issue among early brethren. A lot of social events and life events were connected with uh, the idol temple. Uh, if you had a retirement party or a uh, birthday or anything like that, it might very well be in an idol temple. The uh, meat would be offered to the idol and then shared with those who were in the temple. So it would just be kind of almost a cultural religious thing. And that made that discussion of what you do about these uh, idol feasts was a very relevant issue in the first century. This is not the only passage that deals with that question. Look at Acts chapter 15 for a moment. In Acts chapter 15, when uh, the, uh, Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem to discuss with the apostles and elders the question of circumcision and the law, because there were some men from Judea had come up to Antioch teaching that you had to observe the law and be circumcised to be saved. In the discussion, they decided to write a letter and to send it to the churches telling them, this is Acts 15, 28, where it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. So, the law was, God's will was, to abstain from things sacrificed to idols. That's also a question in Revelation chapter 2, with a couple of the churches that Jesus has a message to. And the church in Pergamum, Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept, kept, kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And the church at Thyatira in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus was upset with the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira because they were permitting people, or had teachers in it that were encouraging the brethren to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's helpful for us to look at this discussion in 1 Corinthians 8-10 in the light of these passages. It is common, I think, for brethren to misunderstand these chapters and to think that it's okay to eat things sacrificed to idols as long as whatever. It's not. Paul will come down and condemn idolatry in this section as well. That's not his first point. That's his bottom line point we'll come to in chapter 10. So the position I will take and I will be willing to defend is that it is wrong for Christians to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, 
that will be further defined as we look at this in chapter 8, and that may initially not be at all what you thought the Bible was saying. Consider the case, and, and we'll go from there. So would somebody read chapter 8, verses 1 through 3? Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So, about these things sacrificed to idols, I believe that the phrase, things sacrificed to idols, refers to eating idol meats in an idol temple, in an idol worship service context. That you wouldn't call it eating something sacrificed to an idol if the meat had no further association with the idol temple. We're dealing here, is it okay to go to the idol temple and eat that meat? And their response, I think he's quoting them, we know, you know how they were about knowledge, we know that we all have knowledge. We know there's no such thing as an idol. We all know that, so it's fine. And Paul's answer to that, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. That's what he's really saying. There's a difference between a bubble and a building. Both of them may grow, but the building has substance, the bubble does not. Knowledge will swell you up, but love will build you up. And they need to think about this question of the idol means from the perspective of love. He says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Paul is concerned about their pride, about their knowledge. Every step of knowledge that we gain ought to lead us to be humble about our ignorance and not proud of our knowledge. You know, the one who brags about how much he knows, ironically, is revealing how much he doesn't know. The more you know, the more you understand, the more you realize how much there is you don't know. And so the one who thinks, I'm in the know, I've got this down, is really by that fact giving evidence that he doesn't have real knowledge yet. Knowledge will humble us before the Lord. And so he says, if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Much better to major on love than just on our self-assumed knowledge. He says, if you love God, you're known by him. I would have said, if he loves God, he knows God. But he reverses that. If he loves God, he's known by God. If you think about that, to be known by the king means more than to know the king. Don't we all know Obama? Does he know you? Not I. You know, if, if, if one of you can uh, prove that Obama knows you, that's saying something. We all know him. Uh, so you're known by God if, if you love. So just our intellectual grasp of something will only take us so far. To be known by Him, we must love Him. Do we love God or do we just know stuff about Him? That's, that's the point he's making here. You need to have your knowledge uh, shaped by love. That needs to be your first focus. 
Thoughts and comments on that? Four to seven. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods in the world, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, they are defiled. Okay. So, you think about this. He says, now concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, and again, I think he's citing their view. They said, we know that there isn't any such thing as an idol. There's no God but one. I believe that their point is this. Since the idol gods don't exist, then how can they be faulted for eating meat in their temples? After all, there really isn't such a thing as an idol or an idol god. So they can go to an idol temple. They can eat the idol meat. They can participate in the idol worship service since they know that idols don't exist. That's just kind of a figment of their imagination. Now, they go ahead and defend that view. And properly so. There are many so-called gods. But to us, there's only one God and one Lord. There's one God from whom are all things. He's the source. And for whom are all things. We find our goal and our mission, our destiny in Him. There's one Lord by whom are all things. Through Jesus, God created. And for whom, and we exist through Him, uh, our existence comes through Jesus, His mediation. So they're right about all that. There is one God, there's one Lord. But I think their point in that, since we know that there's only one God and Lord, that eating meat in an idol temple is fine. Because we know that the idol doesn't really exist. We know there's no such thing as an idol God. But Paul says, however, now he's answering them in verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. You may know that, they may not. Well, they may know it sort of intellectually, but he says some men being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. It's hard to overcome old ideas. I, I suspect even here, there are some superstitious ideas that intellectually you would say, I know it's not really, but it feels like it, and you, you act on your feeling. I wonder if there's anybody here who really struggles with something associated with the number 13. There are a lot of people in the world who think the number 13 is an unlucky number. And they may come to understand there's really not such a thing as luck and unluck. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't get a little apprehensive about Friday the 13th or staying on the 13th floor or, you know, things like that. Or maybe something else. That intellectually, yes, you've accepted the fact there's nothing in this, but boy, it doesn't feel that way. And it's hard to, it's hard, it takes time to grow in the faith. 
it, it's hard to overcome looking at things through the lenses of what you already believe. And so here's the danger, or one of the dangers, uh, of somebody who's always gone to an idol temple to worship an idol. Now he sees you in there, and he goes in to share with you, in his heart and mind, he reverts back to worshiping that idol. It's what he's always done. This is not a perfect illustration, but uh, several, a number of years ago, there was a new convert who'd come from a really bad background morally. And I took him and another brother, Sad was gone to visit her mother, I think. I took him out to eat. And uh, I went to a local chain Mexican restaurant that was well known for having good food at a good price. At least that's the way I do it. But this man, when he went in there, started acting really funny. You know, he's like really nervous and kind of tense and, you know, kind of weird. And well, as soon as the last person took the last bite, he's like, let's go. So we did, and we got outside, and he said, boy, I felt really bad in there. That's the kind of place I always went to drink. There was a bar associated with that restaurant. Now, I didn't think of that restaurant in terms of the bar at all. I've never drunk a drop, so I don't ever think of something in those terms. And it is a restaurant known for its food. I don't think primarily known for its drinks. But sure enough, there was a bar in there, and as it happened, we were seated like right next to that bar. And uh, that bothered him. That background made it a temptation for him to revert back to his drinking that he was trying to get away from. I had not thought about that. It has helped me to be more alert to that since then. And, you know, it may be that for some of these brethren, idols never have meant anything. Going to an idol temple to them is no different than going to any other building. You know, it's just a place, idols are nothing. And they don't think about the fact that their brother, who has a whole different background of experiences, will go in there and be tempted to worship an idol. Now, again, I would say, this is not all Paul's going to say about this. This is point one. There's going to be a point two. But right now, he's just dealing with this on the basis of, think about the damage spiritually done to your brother if you go into this idol zone. Thoughts and comments? Tim? Yeah. Uh, I have a couple questions that are kind of related to each other. Is this kind of passion relatable to us if we put to um, some kind of worship service of our denominational friends and engaging in worship that are not necessarily engaging worship but being a part of worship in a sense of something that we know is to be not actual worship for God, i.e. instrumental music. And also, how would it relate to doing something with a denominational group that would be wrong with something that we do know is acceptable to God, like to be communion with a unscriptural group? Well, that probably goes farther than what this passage is really looking at and some of the principles that we have to think about in making an application. Um, we certainly would not want to do something that we thought might encourage someone to worship 
incorrectly or to have incorrect beliefs. So we would always be concerned about will our participation in anything uh, lead somebody to do something that's wrong. We certainly would not join with anybody in doing wrong, even in worshiping improperly. That's where that this might go afield from, from this passage. But I couldn't share with somebody in a wrong worship practice. That would involve me in sin as well if I shared in what they did. Um, I'm not sure it would be possible to properly observe the Lord's Supper in a context where I didn't even believe perhaps that those who were partaking of it were, were Christians and the church was a church that the Lord would at all recognize. On the other hand, it is true that Paul would go, for example, to synagogues and participate in what they did to some extent, at least to the point of being able to speak and teach. So I don't know that I want to issue some kind of decree about that, but those would be some things I think we'd have to think about and try to evaluate. And one of the good things about a chapter like this is that it gives us some points to reflect on that we might not think about. We might just say, well, I think this is okay. Why have you considered it from the standpoint of the impact what you do might have on a weak brother? So I think that is relevant to, to those kinds of questions. I don't know that it settles them in every situation, but I think that it is something that has to be taken into account. Good questions. Other thoughts, comments, questions about all this? Yes. There are different principles that have to be brought to bear on anything we do. And obviously, we couldn't do something we believed was wrong. If I do something I believe is wrong, I'm showing a spirit of rebellion. Whether it's wrong or not, the willingness to do what I think displeases God shows that I'm willing to disappoint Him. It shows that I've got a rebellious heart. It doesn't necessarily mean if I think it's right that it's okay. It may not be. But if I think it's wrong and I do it anyway, I just show I don't care what I what what the Lord what Lord's will is because I believe that it's it, God doesn't want me to do it and I'm willing to do it anyway. So yeah, Clinton. So, so how do you deal with the situation where, as you were saying earlier, you know something intellectually is right, but you have an apprehensive feeling about it, how do you retrain your conscience to be more in line with what you actually know is right? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have all the answers to that. Um, But we can trust the Lord. And so if we can come to understand on the basis of what the Lord says, the truth about something, how we feel is not the biggest issue. My feelings may contradict what I understand and know. So, we certainly wouldn't want to do something that would be tempting for us to do something wrong. But to act according to what we know God says, according to our conviction, even if it doesn't feel like what we should do, is not not necessarily bad. Lots of things to think about. 
You know, again, Paul could have just said, about things like much idols, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. He preferred to deal with them on the basis of thinking about principles, maybe in part because there's going to be other issues we're going to face that aren't going to be eating things sacrificed to idols in which we're going to have to apply these principles. I think this is interesting because it's it's not talking about something being a sin in and of itself, Um, but I am wondering because of uh, verses such as verse 9 saying, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Uh, would it be sinful to not take that step, to not take that command seriously and to consider um, what the impact is on another individual that you're with? Well, sure. I mean, if the question is, is it wrong for me to do something that hurts a brother because I really don't love him? Yeah, it is. Loving my brother is the second command. And so if I'm just unconcerned about the impact on him because I want to do what I want to do, I'm going to demand my rights regardless of his spiritual health, I think clearly that's wrong. And we'll see that even more in this next section as you mentioned. Joe? Because you're dealing with principles here, and you say that is it helpful for us to think in the order that he has here, verses 1 through 3, loving God, and then the following text, Considering others, and then later on he's going to deal with how it affects us ourselves. Okay, I hadn't really looked at it quite that way, but that makes sense. I, I like that idea. Uh, certainly, it is definitely true. The first thing we think about is what, what, how does God do it? You know, is it consistent with God's will? And secondly, what's the impact going to be on my brother? Lots to think about. Move on to step 8 to 13. <laughs> So I think they said, hey, who's indifferent? You know, it doesn't help or hurt. It doesn't matter. We can eat what we want to. Food doesn't hurt us. Food doesn't help us. So you can't say that eating the meat in an idol's temple has anything to do with my spiritual life. Eating's a matter of indifference. I think that's their argument. And Paul responds back, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What the fact that food doesn't matter ought to mean is that I don't insist on my right to eat if it's going to hurt my brother. My rights should not govern my conduct. The well-being of my brother ought to govern my conduct. I care about him. I sacrifice my rights for his good. Other believers are more important than what I think my rights are. Because to be a stumbling block for the weak means they're going to stumble over my actions 
direction because I insisted on getting my way. He says, for, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dying in an idol temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? That's an ironic use of strengthen. That'll strengthen him right into demolishing himself. You know, and, and he keeps talking about you who have knowledge. You really see how they, they zeroed in on, we have knowledge, we have knowledge. And, and they forgot about love. They forgot about what really mattered because they were, you know, just lifting themselves up in their knowledge they thought they had. He says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Christ died to save that brother, and you won't even give up your idol meat to keep him from stumbling? What a, what a tragedy. What, how, how absurd that is. If Jesus is willing to lay his life on the line, surely you can give up to me. That's what he said. Every word he speaks here is important. The brother, no less than that, for whose sake Christ, no less than he, died. No less than that. If Christ died for your brother, give up anything you need to give up to help him save his soul. Think about ruining the brother that Jesus died for. That's one good passage to show that once saved, always saved. It is not an accurate teaching. You can ruin, you can destroy the brother that Jesus died for. And when you do that, in verse 12, you wound their conscience, but you don't just do that, you sin against Christ. Think about it. What are we to Jesus? We are his body. So we, don't, we not only sin against our brother, but since Jesus identifies with his church, we're hurting Jesus himself. This is a serious matter. We ought to be willing to go to any extreme to avoid hurting him. The brother's eternal welfare is more important than my food. And Paul said, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Whatever it takes. If he never eats another bite of meat, and it'll help his brother go to heaven, he'd, he'd forget it. He'd give up to me. We must prioritize my brother's well-being before God. Whatever rights I have to fork over to help my brother go to heaven. Again, if we had the attitude Jesus had, Jesus came down from heaven, became a man, and suffered on the cross because he loved my brother. And he wanted to save him. And if Jesus is willing to do that, to what length should I not be willing to go? Tell my brother, go to heaven. And if it means I can't eat some meat, or anything else it means I need to give up. That's what he's saying I need to do. Now, if Paul had started somewhere else in this discussion, it probably would have not been so helpful. He will, in chapter 10, come back and we'll get a whole other angle on the meat sacrifice to idols business. An angle that may settle that question a little more definitively. 
But Paul wanted them to, to first of all, think about, before you get down to any questions whether or not it's right or wrong to go to the idol temple, just analyze it in terms of its impact on your brothers standing before God. Because that is an important consideration. It's not the only one. I don't even think it's the most important one, but it is an important one. And it's one that we shouldn't overlook in any question or any decision we make. We're trying not to hurt our brother spiritually. Now this is not saying that we cater to every brother who has a personal opinion different than ours. Or that wants to make everybody else follow his way. We're talking about a matter where it's going to hurt my brother spiritually. And it's going to tempt him to do the wrong thing. In those situations, I give up any right of mine for his sake. Thoughts and comments on chapter 8? Yes, Rob. So, you know, you, this chapter's been basically talking about, uh, in one segment, about, you know, making sure to take that step to not, you know, make your brother stumble. Yes. What happens if, uh, you know, you're genuinely not trying to make somebody stumble? And yet, you know, somebody somebody does because of your efforts and you don't realize it. Sure. Uh, like, I didn't realize it when I took my brother to that Mexican restaurant. Right. I mean, obviously, we don't know what we don't know. It made me more thoughtful about that and gave me something to be more aware of. Uh, I mean, we need to be sensitive and we need to be seeking to understand the impact on our brother. We're not going to be able to, you know, do something we don't understand. But that ought to be a goal of ours. The, the goal of this is not so much, well, I want to make sure I don't do the wrong thing. We really care about my, our brother's spiritual health. We would hope, we would pray perhaps even, to understand what might hurt them. Because we don't want to hurt them. That's the biggest thing we ought to think about is, you know, we don't want to be spiritually damaged. We want them to do well. The more we want that, the more we can identify with them and understand what may hurt them. Other questions or comments? Yes, Amen. We need to really love each other, and that's going to bring us into a greater identification with each other. Bill? In chapter 11, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper, and you do not have home to eat or whatever that way. Are they somehow equating the eating and being commended and worship? Is that what's also happening in chapter 11, or is that just another thing? I'm not sure I see the connection. They are eating. Okay. But I, I missed the rest of that. Okay, other questions? Thoughts? Alright, now, chapter 9, on the surface, appears 